cryptocurrencies are decentralized monetary systems built on open source software. The open source software movement has evolved from the world of Linux, MySQL, and Apache to a thriving ecosystem of commercial enterprises built around open source software. This ecosystem includes projects such as Kubernetes, MongoDB, and React.js. It includes large organizations such as Amazon Web Services, Elastic, and Facebook. In a parallel software universe, the crypto ecosystem has built revolutionary new financial tools, creating billions of dollars of value, but not very many massive commercial companies. In the world of cryptocurrencies, many of the same rules apply to the classic open source world, but other rules do not. How do these two worlds differ from each other? How are they the same? And how might they end up colliding? Hasib Qureshi, Joseph Jacks, and Alok Vasudev join the show for a spirited discussion of cryptocurrencies and open source. Hasib is a cryptocurrency investor, JJ is the founder of OSS Capital, and Alok is an engineer and the founder of crypto venture capital firm Standard Crypto. This was one of the first episodes I've done in my new studio setup, and it was really fun. This is one of my favorite episodes so far, and I hope there are more like it. The in-person setup is pretty sweet, and I'd love your feedback on it. Thanks for listening. Hasib, Joseph, Alok, welcome to Software Engineering Daily, the first in-person recording of Software Engineering Daily. Wow. This is exciting. Thanks for having me. Alok, this is my first time meeting you. I've spent some time talking to Hasib about his beliefs on crypto. Hasib is pretty grounded. Hasib believes in the idea of decentralized money. But when I talk to him about dApps and decentralized file storage and building like a shared world computer, he's more skeptical. What are the long-term goals of the cryptocurrency ecosystem? Are we just building decentralized money? Are we also building the whole dApp world computer? What's your perspective? It depends on how long-term you're thinking. I think that right now, things like money are showing the most signs of working. They're also the things that are technically more easy to implement than some of the more advanced dApp functions that people are kind of projecting out. But I think in the long run, I think crypto networks can replace a lot of internet networks. I think the benefits of the benefits of the tech, I think I'm very optimistic on. And so question of timing, we're not going to have Uber on chain anytime soon, but, but maybe someday. Give me your description of the developer ecosystem of cryptocurrency protocols in 2019? Communities are really important. And in fact, kind of quality of community is, is one of the most important facets for kind of quality of a crypto network or a project. And the developer community is kind of a very important constituent there. I think right now we're in a situation where you have a small number of really competent developers flanked by a much larger number of earlier in the curve, less great developers. But I think that Good projects can attract good engineers, but it's still far from the quality of, of the open source community that we have and kind of infrastructure broadly. Hasib, anything to add to that? 
I mean, I think one of the key storylines of the last couple of years, so Ethereum has attracted by far the largest developer community and people outside of the Ethereum Foundation itself actually building infrastructure and contributing to the ecosystem there. Most other projects don't really have that same wellspring of, of developer activity. And the ratio of outside developers to internal or you know internally funded developers is very lopsided. That said, you know, looking at some of these ecosystems, you know, we're going to have projects coming to light pretty soon that are going to have like hundreds of millions of dollars in capital purely to incentivize developers to build on their platforms. And one of the real open questions that hasn't really been answered yet is, is it possible to pay your way into a developer ecosystem? We're going to see the first trappings of that as some of these mega launches actually start happening over the next year or two. But so far, I think the early signals have been kind of dim. It seems that there's some degree of, I mean, the way that I kind of think about this is like concentric circles of developers where, you know, in order to get somebody to actually go come build stuff for your blockchain, right? You have to decide, okay, who am I actually targeting? Now there's this core inner group of like the most hardcore crypto people who just love crypto. Even if they weren't getting paid for it, they'd be doing it. Those people already have allegiances. And so they're very difficult to buy, right? So the people who are working on Bitcoin, the people who are working on Ethereum, if you're project number XYZ and you just have tons of money and nobody really knows who you are, it's very hard for you to buy those people to come and have them build on your platform just by incentivizing them with bounties or, or with grants. And so you have to start appealing to these wider and wider concentric circles outside of them of people who are less ideological, who are less intrinsically aligned with the storyline of cryptocurrencies. And it's just not obvious that you can actually buy those people because what they get out of open source development is usually not money. It's prestige, it's interest, it's satisfaction. And so it'll, it'll be a tough time seeing if people can crack that nut of having these sort of paid incentivized open source networks, which is really not something we've seen yet. You know, so we've talked very briefly about the problems in open source incentives that like, you know, there, there isn't potentially enough public funding for all the open source infrastructure that tons and tons of companies uh, depend on. Crypto sort of has the inverse problem. They have too much money and not enough open source development. Right. So I don't know. I'm curious what, what your thoughts are about that. So Hasib's pointing to me. This is JJ. Not to oh, yeah, pr- presume we all I'm sound the same. To JJ. We all have reasonably unique voices. So one thing I think a lot about, which is kind of fascinatingly obvious, but not talked about publicly a lot in these two kind of universes, like cryptocurrency blockchain world and the open source world as two kind of big separate ecosystems, but that are very interrelated is that Exactly as you said, Hasib, like the the funding subsidization effect in open source is is basically the thing that underpins the sustainability of most open source projects, most most open source communities. So you have a big bank or an insurance company or a media company that employs lots of software engineers and, and invariably... You know, they're building some business logic application that's targeted at solving for a trading application at a bank or a web service in a media company or some, you know, underwriting application in an insurance uh, context. But they're, those software engineers that are, you know, part of the tens of millions of software engineers on earth are paid a salary by those companies. And that salary is, is the subsidized funding indirectly, effectively for the open source technology that those software engineers use, vastly open source. So open source languages, compilers, operating systems, in many cases, increasingly open source applications like Mattermost and other things. And so we have basically trillions in investment from like the world at large paying for the salaries of those tens of millions of software engineers over time. 
and compounding too, because the number of software engineers is growing and increasing. That's kind of what I would classify as the open source funding ecosystem. And most people sort of like will assert that the open source funding world is non-existent, which I find very oxymoronic and nonsensical. Then I'm relatively to Sieben and Alec very ignorant and a novice to understanding the deep kind of profound nuances of the cryptocurrency blockchain world. But as you just said, it's kind of inverted. Like there's basically this incentive monetary intrinsic mechanism built into the process of as a developer contributing to any of these blockchains or tokens or ecosystems because you sort of have to buy into some kind of economic architecture as you're doing that and so i guess maybe a question for both of you guys alec and hasib which you probably have like a ton of insight on at what point or what are the sort of things that would need to come together in order to sort of cause the cryptocurrency blockchain ecosystem to sort of see similar indirect subsidization effects that are independent of convincing any given developer constituency that a given incentive structure is the right one? So, I mean, that's a tricky question because what a lot of people in crypto would claim is that, you know, if you look at something like Bitcoin, Bitcoin, many people would claim, solves the open source incentivization problem precisely because if you work on Bitcoin, Bitcoin becomes more valuable and you own some Bitcoin, you have skin in the game, and therefore you're increasing the value of your own portfolio by working on Bitcoin. That's the sort of naive argument. I think it's a very bad one because it, it, it sort of like is the classic example of a game theoretical free riding problem where, you know, if I'm a developer and I own a little bit of Bitcoin, like, you know, the, the, the incremental value that I will increase my own Bitcoin is trivial compared to the amount of work that I'll be putting into it. Right. Like, well, there's also the thing that Bitcoin is Bitcoin and it's not a web server. It's not an operating system. It's not a language. It's not all the other wide array of tools that developers actually need that don't have a built in mechanism for economic incentive. Right. I tend to believe that at the end of the day, like the open source ecosystem between crypto and, you know, just standard open source at at the end of the day has to be similar in that it's basically self-directed based on a prestige economy and more about like a social network of people working out of passion than it is out of being purely paid incentives. Because it it seems that we've not seen any good examples of a developer ecosystem that has worked purely on the basis of paid incentives. Mm. You know, like the we, we've seen you know eos and tron try to to, yeah. to get at this a little bit and they, they just are not attracting high quality developers wait unpack that a little bit more so you we're all like deep into the the mazes here so we might be kind of understanding but the listeners might be lost so when you say that in the crypto world we haven't seen something that has worked in terms of getting developers t- to contribute based on some paid incentive what do you mean by that unpack that a little bit more what is that well, yeah, I think there, there are two elements to it. One is getting people to work on the core protocol itself, and the others are to get people to build on top of it. Two different types of developers, two kind of different incentives as well, and neither have really worked in kind of the pure pay-for-play sense or trying to directly monetarily incentivize. Mm-hmm. Often it comes down to if you're looking for people to patch and upgrade your core protocol you are either putting bounties up for very specific features or very specific additions, and that doesn't work because mm-hmm. you'll kind of do the minimum that passes your unit tests, right. right? And there's not a sense for longer commitment to the project. You would just want to hack to get to the reward. And yeah, move on. exactly. And, and similarly, then, the hack to get the reward, I think, is, is, is one way to think about why the incentives are rough. Mm-hmm. But to Hasib's earlier point, what, one thing that's interesting about 
crypto is that you can play the game on different timescales. And so could something like a token, there's short-term incentives, but there's also a long-term incentive at play. And with cash, for example, where if you were just paying, say your traditional open source project, paying people per commit, one, there's a measurement problem. I think the problem with paying cash for code contribution is that it's kind of a one-off and it's very transactional. And it's, it's hard to have kind of an iterated game or kind of a long-term approach when you do that. But there's a thought that something like a token where there is kind of a long-term optimism for its value capture that could help provide a longer-term incentive. Haseeb, you said that there was not an example, a past example of a developer ecosystem centralizing around an open source project where they are directly financially remunerated. But that's kind of commercial open source. I mean, commercial open source is basically you are building MongoDB and it's in the open, but most of the people that build on it are financially incentivized to build it because they have stock options. That's an interesting point. What you're talking about is like, okay, within the structure of a firm itself, like if I, if I create a company that is building a database, right? And then I pay my people to work on it and the database happens to be open source. I totally agree with you to the same extent that, you know, the Ethereum foundation or, you know, EOS foundation can like hire developers in-house and work on the project hundred percent. They can pay people to do that. If they give them stock options and benefits and so on. Yeah, totally. That works. The question is not, can you get a, a particular company with a particular business model to hire developers to work on stuff? 100% you can. The question is, can you create a broad ecosystem of multiple actors in multiple jurisdictions who are all working toward the same end? In regular open source, I mean, obviously, it's not a cakewalk for anybody, but there is a broad set of constituents that are willing to work on infrastructure, just purely for the kudos or just for the love of the game, right? And what I think is probably the, the pivotal issue with trying to do it pay for play and trying to just literally say, hey, you know, if I'm Linux, the Linux kernel, and I just start paying people out for every single commit that they add to the to the repo. Like, I would assume that the biggest problem is that, you know, this is a classic problem in psychology. When you start paying people for stuff that they're they're doing out of the love of their heart, it changes the way they approach that thing they're doing, right? So there's this famous example of a, uh, there's like this Israeli school that I think it was like a, it was like daycare and they had some social science researchers trying to figure out like, why did parents end up coming so late to pick up their kids? So, you know, the school administrators would like sit around after it was time for the kids to go home and parents would be reliably late. And so they decided to impose a fee where if your kid was late, then you'd have to pay this fee. And what they found was that actually increased the rate at which parents came late. And the reason why they posit that it increased the rate at which parents came late was because it now made this thing transactional. It now, if you're a parent, you're running late to pick up your kid. Now you think, well, you know, I can pay $10 to be but late. That, no, like, that's, fine. But that's not right. It's, it's actually, because it's, it's transactional either way. They're just shifting the opacity of the transaction. Yeah, legibility, because, right? Yeah, because before it's like, okay, you show up on time because otherwise your reputation suffers in this small community and your reputation with the daycare owner and you might get kicked out of the daycare and that sucks. But if you make a financial thing out of it, then the daycare is implicitly saying, look, you have the option to pay $10 extra and show up 20 minutes later. Right. But it ultimately, it commoditizes that lateness. It commoditizes time. And by treating time as a commodity as opposed to a social imposition and a, you know, a threat to your own reputation, that changes your calculus in deciding how you're going to deal with but it. But not necessarily in a, in a negative way. It just turns it into a more market-based 
opaque. I agree. I agree. But the interesting or thing is that transparent. it transparent. doesn't do what you'd expect. You would think, well, we're not, they're not losing any that's money. That's a separate problem. When we add money. But that's a separate problem. What do you mean it's a separate problem? Here's the, here's the analogy I'm making. Okay. The analogy I'm making is that if you started paying people per commit in the Linux kernel, people would start thinking, okay, well, my consulting rate is like a hundred bucks an hour or 150 bucks an hour. And now I'm, you know, getting 30 bucks for the five hours I put into this commit. Like, is it really yeah. worth my time? Maybe an improvement. You may see an improved ecosystem. I, Cause I mean, you cannot say today that that doesn't work because payment systems suck so much still like the integration, the payments integration problem is still so bad. Right? I don't disagree with that, but I would be very surprised if that were, you know, just let's assume that people are not stupid and that if this was a markedly better system for open source, people would have tried it. And Dude, have you tried to use Gitcoin? Have you tried to use like, doesn't, and doesn't, Brandon, GitHub, doesn't GitHub have some like primitive system for incentivizing people now and it's like still not great because they just rolled it out? Yeah, I think they this added something very recently. This has just not been tried. GitHub sponsors and the very talented and brilliant Devin Zugel is running this program at at GitHub, I think we're, we're glossing over something a little bit more fundamental that, you know, kind of touches on what Jeff and Hasib were kind of bouncing back and forth on, which is intrinsic motivations and incentives and extrinsic motivations and incentives. Intrinsic ones are sort of, you know, you do it for the love of the game, as Hasib was saying, you do it for your own internally kind of um, altruistic. Yeah, is the, um, is the developer an artist or are they a capitalist? Yeah, moral reasons, you know, extrinsic motivations where you introduce some type of reward loss function essentially to the whole thing and you have this like opportunity cost people associate money with the measurement barometer system of like opportunity cost self-worth value you know ego and so when you sort of say okay now now there's some kind of like money-based scorekeeping mechanism the extrinsic motivation is all of a sudden introduced into the system I, I proposed with the Kubernetes community a number of years ago to use uh, Balaji Srinivasan's early implementation of, of a payable inbox, earn.com, for uh, creating a list of Kubernetes maintainers that were sort of expert people and using that as, as a way to sort of call and dramatically reduce the thousands of open issues on the Kubernetes repo on GitHub that were vastly troubleshooting related. And so like people were like, hey, how do I basically so paid stack overflow troubleshoot the port mappings of my service endpoint to my docker container you know port and my web application port that are misaligned and you know this is like one of the most common things that would result in like this networking error and ip tables whatever and, so. and this is one of the primary functions of a so open source company question. they go to the list they ask the question of the list they set a budget and a certain number of experts will respond Balji's idea with the payable inbox is pretty profound it basically introduces an extrinsic incentive mechanism into you know sending people messages and so if someone responds to the message you have to pay them typically you know a small amount but like one to ten dollars fifty dollars i think mark and jason's on there at like a hundred bucks so like respond get a response from mark you have to pay a hundred bucks and it's all crypto so you basically load up some money into a wallet the kubernetes community vehemently pushed back on this like all the people that were you know that were at the time kind of on the steering committee I won't name names, but pretty pretty obvious. The list responses is preserved on, on Google Group's history. And Tim Hawken, Brian Grant, Eric, I forget his last name from Google, basically some of the some of the sort of... Googlers. Ma- the, the, a lot of the Googlers kind of said this would sort of introduce like a perverse incentive into the mix of intrinsic. This thread evolved into a pretty philosophical back and forth on intrinsic and extrinsic motivations. And it was sort of independent of the scope and the proposal and like earn.com and the whole thing. 
which I found very interesting. And it's up up there. Maybe we can uh, send you a link and you can put it in the show notes. It's actually pretty pretty interesting thread. It wasn't anything like antagonistic, but there, there's some Google very... Google wanted to maintain their control. Google I mean, won. altruism. Google won. Essentially, Google won the argument at the end of the day, and that wasn't something that was really pushed forward. It ended up getting, getting a bunch of people on the list, but never really helped. I think the point about Linux kernel contributions and like, you know, basically... Well, I think Jeff's actually right. I sort of agree on both sides. There's two schools of thought on both sides. Right now we have a technology problem, a user interface problem. It's like really hard to actually get something like that to be adopted because it's just so crappy. The implementations and the options people have are really bad. Like things like HackerOne are working really well. We and, and 20 years ago, we had white hat hackers that would do it for intrinsic reasons. They would find vulnerabilities, cross-site scripting, SQL injection attacks. They would tell the web, web owners, uh, hey, you know, if you don't close these uh, vulnerabilities, you're going to have like, you know, Russian hackers, like basically steal clear text, SSS, SSN, credit card information, and sell it on the black market. Now we have HackerOne that basically pays people bug bounties and acts as an arbiter to basically build a network of companies that want to get hacked and will voluntarily opt in to getting hacked by people all around the world. Uh, you know, ideally white hat hackers. And now we have like a sort of centralized incentive mechanism for that particular type of developer activity. We don't have it for generalized abstractions for like every everything. And I think like currently in the open source world, the incentive abstraction lives at an indirect level. And so it lives at the level of the company. So you have commercial open source companies, as we call them at OSS Capital and other places like HashiCorp, Confluent, MongoDB, Red Hat, many others, they have, they'll have different business models, but they are the centralized entities typically that are acting as stewards and significant sort of con- kind of center of gravity and credibility points of presence for the open source projects that they, that they maintain and that they commercialize and that they build products around. Those companies are very often venture funded. Not all of them are, but many of them are. And they have very well understood and increasingly highly scalable business models that, that enable them to become five, 10 plus billion dollar companies. And so the incentive sort of incentive mechanism lives at the layer of abstraction at those companies. It lives very far away. In fact, I think optimally so from the open source projects with the crypto sort of token ecosystem world, the exact reverse is, is sort of materializing where, you know, there's this very significant pent up interest and a desire to shift that incentive mechanism as close to the open source technology and open source project as possible. Well, the difference is there's no business buyer, right? I think for most commercial open source, there's a business buyer. Enterprises. Yeah, enterprises are buying and there's large contract value up for grab. But even within like crypto aside, there are certain kinds of open source projects that venture capitalists are more excited about, that business buyers are more excited about. And those I think can get funded well, those they can hire developers directly and pay them to work on it. And then there's also a class of open source projects, things like front end frameworks, things like programming languages that are much harder to build business models around that don't get the same kind of. So interesting question, I don't know the answer to this is the quality of development, quality of the community. What's the difference between kind of Let's say, like you know, like something like Kafka compared to something like, well, like React. So, well, so wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Finish your question, Alec. So, well, I'm Alec- saying, is there a noticeable difference between the shapes of the communities and, and ultimately the quality of development and leadership for open source projects that have obvious business use cases that can seek funding more easily versus those that are harder to monetize that almost by necessity then need to have a different shape of contribution. Okay, so you JJ said, he said that the way that the companies do it right now, the way the enterprise open source works, you said it was, I believe you said it was optimal relative to 
pushing the financial incentives closer to the developers, which is what the crypto people want to do. Am I correct? So you're embellishing a little bit what I was saying. I, I think currently we've found a very scalable equilibrium and an abstraction in terms of where the incentive lives in order to create a significant, you know, sort of growth market around commercial open source. That was sort of one one twentieth what it currently is five or six years ago. And I don't know how useful that data point is because you could say the same thing of crypto five, six years ago and it's crypto is like one, you know, one one thousandth what it is today, five, six years ago. But he, so here's the point I wanted to make, which gets to what Alok was, was raising. I think what we have right now is a crutch. I think that the Google model of launching Kubernetes, I think that the MongoDB model of doing MongoDB is a crutch. And I think you see the fractures in that crutch in things like Istio and things like the licensing debates, where we see the fracturing that comes from this weird incentive structure where you have this open source thing that has this air of altruism that comes from the roots of the Linux Foundation. And, you know, you don't see this with something like React, where React says, they they come right out and say, look, like, this stuff mostly comes out of Facebook. And they're very transparent about that. They're like, look, Facebook is basically on the bleeding edge of front-end development. Like, we're solving the hardest problems here internally at Facebook. And we're going to go out and talk to tons of people, and we're going to make sure that our problems are consistent with the external problems. But we're going to be very honest and transparent that, like, look, we've got a dedicated team that's working on this stuff. And so, yeah, we control it. Like, why wouldn't we? Whereas with the Kubernetes and Istio thing, you see, like, this really weird... Like let's like molding of the community, and I just think I, I just I'll I'll summarize real quick. I just I think that the pushing of the incentives closer to the developers will ultimately work. I think it'll work way better than this weird indirection of of I'm not the, saying the commercial it won't, open source. Stuff. Yeah. So to be clear, to qualify what I was saying earlier, I'm not saying it won't work. I'm not saying I'm against it. I'm saying you know currently where value is being captured sustainably and scalably based on current models is indirectly through companies that commercialize open source as cost businesses, as we call them, commercial open source software companies, or any company that employs any software engineer literally doing anything, paying them a salary, and then that software engineer has autonomy to choose uh, what open source technology they use. I want to mention that you've conflated two hugely profoundly different things in what you mentioned before, which is like worth pointing out. You basically articulated a contrast between the motivations and source of open source projects that came out of either Facebook, Google, and then you also mentioned foundation-led or foundation-driven open source projects. The motivation and creative drivers behind different open source projects is entirely orthogonal to how sustainable they become as commercial ecosystems, uh, entirely orthogonal. So like we've done lots of research on this at, at OSS Capital and just historically myself about like where what are the sources for the projects? Like where did they come from? Why were they created? in particular projects uh, that became the basis for huge companies, right? So Elasticsearch, Vagrant, Git, Kubernetes, what have you, right? Applications, compilers, up and down the stack. And there's a wide range of source creation, motivation, variance in why these projects were created as contrasted with how they ultimately came to be commercialized at scale. 
Uh, and in fact, there's no correlation between where and why the projects were created and whether or not they were highly commercializable or not, or, or, you know, at the end of the day. So like Elasticsearch was a personal project built by Shai Bannon, eventually became widely adopted in an industry, and it's now the basis of a $10 billion company. Vagrant, also a personal project built by Mitchell, sort of became the basis for, for, for HashiCorp and then lots of other projects. Something like Cassandra came out of Facebook, was the basis for Datastacks, which is a successful commercial open source business. Something like Spark came out of AmpLab and UC Berkeley, Academia, became the basis for Databricks, multi-billion dollar company. Something like Kafka came out of LinkedIn, a big internet hyperscaler, became the basis for a multi-billion dollar company, Confluent. There's a very wide variety, and there's probably 50 other examples that are similarly you know, distributed, and there isn't any particular concentration. I just wanted to mention that in what you were saying around this sort of crutch, and I don't think you really elaborated on, on what you meant by crutch. I think I understand. For the listeners, it's probably useful for you to elaborate a little bit. I just mean we're on the way towards developer networks I, I think I think there's going to be very... So at OSS Capital, we've invested in a company figuring out and sort of iterating and exploring models to shift that incentive closer to the developer. And so we're very for business model innovation, incentive structure innovation, licensing innovation, innovation all around. That's just going to continue. I guess the broader thing that, that I'm kind of in particular convinced of is that the future will be very heterogeneous. I don't think there's going to be any pendulum swinging in the you know complete either end of the, the, the sort of spectrum or direction. We're going to have tokenized open source ecosystems and we're going to have commercial open source ecosystems. The latter go out and, and take money and build products that are sold to the $4 trillion enterprise market. The former will somehow create a very usable, something that has a low level of friction to get massive adoption, you know, experience to tokenize open source and build some incentive structure as close to the open source projects as possible. Or, or maybe something like GitHub sponsors will work where there's a big centralized network where people host their code and collaborate around it. And you can actually, you know, introduce some kind of sustainable, ideally, it's not a digital tip jar. It's something that will literally create a two-sided marketplace to, to, to make things compelling. On I mean, w- one reason why I'm skeptical of this sort of developer for hire model of open source or like, you know, pushing the incentives down to the developers is that I think, you know, while economically it sounds pristine, it sounds lovely to like have this idea that like, okay, well, the, the reason why I don't think that economic model applies well to open source is a few reasons. One is that developers are very non-uniform. Mm-hmm. So like, there are some developers who are just absolutely amazing killer beasts, and they're the people who actually maintain and build these things right. in the first place. And those people are extremely valuable relative to the marginal developer, who's just somebody onboarding onto React for the first time and wants to you know, grab their first pull request. And the way you incentivize those two developers is very different. Mm-hmm. And you care a lot more about how you incentivize the first developer than the second if you want a thriving and stable open source ecosystem. And so I I kind of think in a way it's a lot more analogous. You know, if you think about what is driving people to do open source and what even is like that, the best analogy I can think of is professors agreeing to edit journals, like peer review, exactly, where it's something that you do kind of just for, because it, you know, it advances your career, makes more prestigious. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that like, you can put on your lapel and look, look com- compelling to your peers, but you're Which not- ultimately gets you paid. Ultimately gets paid, but much later on down the road, right? It gets paid indirectly through, you know, better career advancement and having more friends and, you know, more Twitter followers or whatever. The, the second reason why I think the economic model doesn't work that well is that there's very low liquidity when it comes to developers, mm-hmm. by which I mean, you know, if I take the maintainer of Redis and I go port him over to React, right? He's not a fungible developer. Right. Like I can't, I can't just say like, well, he's a great developer. Therefore, if I push him over here, he'll be great. These projects are very sticky. 
And because of that, at the end of the day... If you paid them enough. Uh, sure, yes, if you pay them some absurd amount of money. Salvatore is a very talented programmer. Yeah, you have, but you have, to, you have to push over that stickiness threshold, <laughs> right? Which basically means that, I mean, open source is a classic public goods problem. That's why it's so weird that it works at all. It's an infinite resource, though. So one thing that I... What is an infinite resource? So Adam Jacob, who is is a uh, frenemy intellectually, let's say. We actually disagree profoundly. Uh, so he's a creator of Chef, which is this c- configuration management language. Oh, he had a great show on Changelog recently. He actually did the recent OzCon keynote, and he said something really awesome that I totally agree with, which is that open source makes software infinite, an infinite resource, something that you can actually like expand out without boundary in terms of like the the sort of elastic nature of like the resource itself. So it's not, it doesn't have any kind of like fundamental constraint around. So perishable uh, dynamics, like, you know, monetizing some perishable good is one, one way that like, you know, software is used to, 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 to create value propositions for automation. Like, you know, we have perishable space in our cars, software creates the ability to place people in those cars efficiently and solve a bin packing problem. You know, we work, uh, you know, it's basically a, a software abstraction for office office space. But he know. seems talking about writing software, not distributing software. So, so, but I guess those things are too, too overlapping. We're kind of bouncing around a lot. I've wanted to do this for a while and I've been thinking pretty deeply about this. And you two, Alec and Hasib are very deep on the crypto, you know, blockchain space. And I want to run this by you. Something that I think it pl- applies to both the commercial open source world and the you know token open source world, if you will, or the crypto open source world. There's two time- types of fundamental capitalistic orientations in the way you sort of look at, like, if you were to build uh, an Uber in the way that Uber exists today, or you were to build a commercial open source Uber or a tokenized or a blockchain Uber. The first approach, which is what we see today, uh, centralized companies raise billions of dollars, it's public, it has a board and so on, is what you could sort of in some ways classify as zero-sum capitalism, right? So it's a highly competitive market. There's lots of ride-sharing competitors. There's Lyft. There's all the M&A. There's antitrust issues and so on. Centralized. Zero-sum monopolistic capitalism effectively, right? If you look at the commercial open source Uber that doesn't really exist and hasn't succeeded yet, although there is something like uh, Libre Taxi on GitHub and things like that are at the fringes, but let's just, let's just say that that doesn't exist yet, or a tokenized Uber. Capitalism dynamics would be fundamentally different. Something that I've been thinking about as one way to describe it is a meritocratic capitalism, where you decouple the core technology that creates the value from the company or the entity, and anyone can capture value around it, and anyone can commercialize it. Uh, and so that's how commercial open source companies work, is you have an open source core, it's permission, permissionless, and it per- has high levels of permissive rights to the users, contributors, uh, in terms of running the software and seeing it and so on. Dom- domains are an analogy here. Right. Where you have open protocols, but then you have registrars. So what do you think about that? Like there's monopolistic capitalism and then there's meritocratic capitalism. I think the idea of meritocratic capitalism is more scalable and it works more in this kind of sovereign individual economy that we're starting to see unfold. And I think it applies evenly to both worlds, both the crypto blockchain world and the commercial open source world. Obviously, they're two different implementation approaches. But what do you guys think of that? So I, I tend to disbelieve any claims of fundamental phase shifts in the way that economies or capitalism works as a result of crypto. It's sort of like, I'll believe it when I see it, but so far, there, like, there's this sense in crypto that sort of the laws of economics are suspended somehow because you can launch, I guess, because you can launch a project and it's worth, you know, $50 million and none, no other project went down and or somehow, you know, network forks and the collective value of those forks is more than the original chain. There's a lot of really weird phenomena that make you kind of, that are 
almost convincing that like, well, this is just like a new throw kind away of all the exactly. throw away all well, the I mean, rules. we are creating money out of thin air. Right, exactly. Which you know, this is a pretty, pretty contrarian response. Yes. Well, so what, what no, I'm saying a, is it's that it's eventual consistency. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, eventual consistency money. is a great way to put it. I think I think the world is eventually consistent, and ultimately, if crypto works, yeah. right, in the long run, it works because it is a better version of things we already want. I don't think we will want new things because of crypto. I think we basically want what we want. And crypto, if it succeeds in giving us a better way to get what we want, like it ultimately gets cashed out in the real economic wants and desires that we have in what what yeah, we would otherwise call the capitalist economy. But don't economy. discount innovations in capital formation as allowing us to build things we've never built before, accomplish things we've never accomplished before, right? This is like the joint stock corporation allowed us to build railroads. And so now I, I, I do think that, that the means of, of funding and organizing these things could absolutely lead to us building different things. But I mean, humans are human, so that's not going to change. Right. But yeah, but I think kind of reducing frictions in, in small places could actually lead to very big impacts. But this is Jevin's paradox, guys, right? Like you make something easier to consume and you're going to have exponential increase in the usage of the thing. Like that's very well understood and it may not change the fundamental economic properties and laws that we know of, like Haseeb is saying, which I agree is much more pragmatic kind of view. I would probably subscribe to something similar. But the Jevons paradox thing, I think it like it feels like Jevons paradox still kind of applies because you're making the incentive structure infinite as opposed to centralized to one entity. Right. And so, you know, and it's and it's somewhat disaggregated, you know, like a meritocratic cap table or something like instead of establishing balance balances of power up front, they're constructed evolutionarily based on contributions. I mean, we're seeing these experiments in real time as different kinds of teams and different kinds of organizations are being attempted of like DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, which are basically these completely loosely coordinated set of actors who are just, you know, economically tied together to, you know, completely distributed teams to, you know, teams that are where, where you know, a very small number of people are working on the core protocol and most everybody else is building on top Can of it. Can I ask a question that I think a lot of people gloss over? Yeah. Like DAOs, I think of as you describe them, like I feel like every blockchain crypto project markets itself as a DAO. Like they don't draw the line of differentiation between like, well, no, no, at certain layers, there's more decentralization than not. A DAO is an org structure, right? A DAO is about business logic that's encoded on chain that allows people to kind of coordinate under a well-specified set of rules. So a DAO is a very specific thing in the crypto world. And so, because uh, like Ethereum's not really autonomous, right? Like you basically yeah. got so in fact, Vitalik, he's he's. What are the two yeah. big examples of like DAO so, and not a DAO? So the DAO was where the name came from, which was built on top of Ethereum. And what it was was it was basically a decentralized venture capital firm, mm-hmm. essentially. So the idea was that the DAO was built on Ethereum. There would be DAO tokens, and you would put money into the DAO, receive tokens in return, and those tokens would give you some exposure to the upside of the funds that the DAO accumulated, and would also give you some governance rights on being able to kind of influence what the DAO funded. And the idea, all, all of VC fund, if you think about it, is there's there's kind of a capital formation event, and then there's a decision making process to invest in things, and then you have holdings, and if those holdings appreciate, then people that own stakes in in the fund will have their stakes appreciate. It sounds awfully similar to how REI works. What, what is REI? It's a oh, co-ops. I it's think it's a co-op. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of a co-op model, right? Yeah, I mean, the difference here it was it was you invested in the DAO as an LP, and you were looking for for direct upside. Thousands of mini LPs, basically. Yeah. Yeah. The interesting thing about the DAO, I mean, the DAO obviously was hacked very, yeah, very famously. So that, and yeah, fell it was apart. hacked, and basically there's a hundred, what, 120 mil 
worth of so this is not a new idea the point is it's not a new idea it's just at a different it's a different implementation of well so the, i think the DAO, the DAO itself was a particularly recognizable you know sort of twist on a venture capital firm what i think of like the the best example of like a DAO that is just totally unrecognizable to most people in the normal economy is a uh, randau so Randau is a decentralized random number generator. Okay. And the way that it works is we don't have to go over the, the gritty details, but essentially you have like a bunch of people who join this DAO. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they contribute randomness. That randomness gets XORed together and then that produces this random number. Uh, and now why would people cool. do that? Why would people do that? The reason why they do that is they get paid by the consumers right. of that randomness. Right. So this Randau contract just keeps running and it essentially pays people to come work for it. Mm-hmm. And when they're done working, they can leave Randau right. and other people can join. And so you can see how, you know, this is completely unlike any other system where the entire economic activity is getting coordinated by a smart contract and by pure incentives, right? Yeah. Whereas the DAO, you know, in actuality, the DAO was like, it had these sort of managers that slot yeah, it. Yeah, and like, yeah, yeah. You know, there were a lot of humans in the loop. When does quality of work get solved? Because like the biggest, like, I think driver for dictatorial, highly hierarchical, you know, founder-led companies is like, okay, the founder sets the bar, like sets the culture, sets the motivational driver, sets the pace, sets the cadence, sets like how hardcore are you going to be, you know, famously people go work for Tesla and they quit if they can't keep up with Elon's pace and his standards and his work ethic and so on, right? So like at what point, and for good or bad, right? And that goes on the other end of the spectrum too. At what point does the quality of work effectively problem get solved when you don't have a centralized entity driving a certain standard? Well, for things like Randau and even things like proof of work contributions in crypto, you have the benefit of, it's very easy to check whether what's being submitted is accurate. It's, it's, mm. it's programmatic, right? In Bitcoin, you can check if the hash was generated correctly. Mm. In Randau, you can check if the entropy or, or your contribution to it was generated correctly. And it's a very easy to verify. Are there subjective things? Because like you hear about these things in like a mechanical Turk. If you have something that's subjective or that's like even slightly, slightly not, not objective, you submit it to three Turks instead of one, and yeah. you just take the two out of three. Does yeah. that ever happen in in crypto, where you have a you need to have a two out of three kind of like subjective voting sort of thing? Yeah, well, voting schemes are really common in crypto, and in fact, some of the newer layer one protocols are actually they use a voting scheme for the core consensus mechanism. So, for example, a lot of the proof of stake systems, as opposed to proof of work, there's a voting quorum that basically decides whether a transaction is valid or not. And does that lead to any perversions, or does it actually work out well it well, it's a game theoretically supposed to get people to act honorably because if you're acting dishonorably then if if you lose the vote then you lose money that you've put at stake okay. in principle but that that's again that's kind of consensus that's pretty core there other examples are there's a project called auger that's about prediction markets mm-hmm. and basically what auger does is allows the the outcome of a real world event or the truth to be crowdsourced and so, for example, if the you're prediction betting, of it, yeah, if you're betting on the outcome of an Bernie's election, going to win the election. Yeah. If he doesn't, people, certain people who who took that put lose money. People who took the other side of it make money. Yeah, well, so there's the market for the bet, right? Like, did Bernie win or not? Did you bet that he would or not? And then Augur does the bookmaking on the people who have actually. Well, but, but so the the part of Augur's game theory is about is the truth that's being reported mm-hmm. accurate, right? Because. Because there's certain things that aren't categorically true until, you know, you get certain data yeah. inputs on them. For, for the prediction market to resolve, you need an input signal on right, kind of right, which right, side right, right. won or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Augur 
generates that input signal in a decentralized way by crowdsourcing That's it. a great application for this, Augur. I've heard of Augur before. I, I think I met Joey once, actually, the yeah. Augur founder. Well, there's all, there's a bunch of game theory on like what happens. If, does it work? Does the Oracle process work? It works. So reporting, yeah. So like the rep tokens or there's a sophisticated mechanism that's probably too much to get into here, but it works right now. Augur's live and, and you can see these markets are resolving correctly. And if you report an incorrect outcome, then you have money at stake that you lose if you do so. And the protocol has a way of of also adapting and there's an arbitration process that happens. How, how fundamental are self-governing blockchains? Hasib and Alec, like, you know, the OCaml one by uh, Tezos. Yeah. Uh, how fundamental are they? Or how interesting or how interesting I, are they I think these they're days? very interesting. I'm, I'm personally very skeptical of what's called on-chain governance. So on-chain governance... Traditionally, air, the air way quotes that on chain. Yeah, air quotes on chain. So the way that on chain governance is kind of defined is like in opposition to the way that Bitcoin or other normal open source projects are governed, which is like people on a Google group or on a news list who basically are like and there's like the foundation sort of maybe emissaries of the yeah. community. Exactly. Benevolent dictator, right? Benevolent dictator kind of model or benevolent you know oligarchy or whatever. Benevolent you know, like, apostles. Or benevolent something. apostles, exactly. And so the on chain governance model says, okay, well this is you know we're in crypto land. What are we doing with all this you know gross meat space stuff? Let's instead enshrine in the protocol some kind of vote that of course we can do a vote entirely on chain so in the protocol itself and then enforce the outcome of that vote also on chain so for example in Tezos one of the things that you can do and that in fact they're I, I believe they might have already done or they're about to do is um, they're, they're going to do a protocol upgrade normally you know to upgrade your software you have to like you know click yes I'm willing to accept upgrade my the, accept the thing right what Tezos does is it runs a vote and that vote, everybody's voting on the hash of this new software binary. And if everybody agrees, all of their clients, in order to follow the protocol, they automatically download and apply the upgrade themselves. And this avoids a lot of the problems in coordination that have happened with Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies in general, where you know some upgrade is is recommended, but like not everybody upgrades. So it disaggregates the like governance you know, logic dis, uh, evolution. The, yeah. the governance logic evolution it shifts to some automated protocol embedded in the blockchain as opposed to living at the level of humans that need to yeah. codify that and like I mean, roll it out through voting. Yes. I mean, ultimately, everything lives at the level of humans, right? Because humans are voting. Humans are agreeing to install the software in the first place. But then the record of it. But unpack the nuance on of how on-chain governance works again. Like, again, this is like we're super deep in the vortex here. Just try and simplify it for people who like people understand democratic voting. Right. People don't understand on-chain governance well, for, for crypto. Like, what are the differences? Well, and there's a reason why I'm asking this question. It, it dovetails immediately to source available licenses, well, it may which be is helpful a big thing into in open source. What are the things that people can vote on? So, for example, one thing you can vote on is an inflation schedule, mm-hmm. right? The rate at which new coins are emitted by the protocol. Yeah. And so oh. there'd be a motion to change that. And it would be a how couple lines do you to mint? edit. Yeah, how many how many tokens get emitted yeah. per second? What's the shape of the curve if it if it's something that allocations maybe for the yeah? And so the idea is it's it's the the implementation um, would be a couple lines of code that you would change, and then there would be a vote on chain, and there'd be a record of who voted, who voted for what, and then if it's done in the way that the protocol specifies, and the change happens automatically, and then however many blocks later, you would start getting the new issuance schedule. So you can kind of I think a good way to think about this is like imagine that we had an organization and. Basically, like I'm the benevolent dictator, and you guys, we're all you know, we're going to discuss things, and then when we agree, I'm going to go implement them, and then we'll yep. push everything out. Right? That is basically how most cryptocurrencies are governed. Mm-hmm. Okay. What you can imagine a decent analogy for what Tezos and other on-chain governance systems are doing is they are like, okay, let's adopt these very systematic bylaws 
that basically enforce everything that can be done and exactly when it is executed. Rights, rights management is effectively what it is. You have the right to do certain things and that's codified in the governance model logic of the chain. Right. And, and at a certain point, like, we can't press the brakes anymore, right? right? Like the sort of the, the on-chain governance just takes over. Takes and there's a, I tend to think that if you think your governance model is already great, mm-hmm. awesome, codify it, sure. make it, make it run forever. Sure. Awesome. I tend to believe that we are so early in the development of all these systems mm-hmm. that on-chain governance ends up leading to more problems and more inflexibility than it gives in benefits. Oh, so you're saying we haven't yet reached an understanding of what the right rules should be, Correct. basically. And, and we don't know that. So here's the reason why I asked that question. That was insanely informative, incredibly informative. It didn't get more insane. It's a very valuable response. The reason I asked that question is actually referring back to why I, I use the word synesthesia or synthesis uh, in, in uh, texting Jeff about uh, potentially doing this podcast. Those are two totally different things, by the way. Uh, I know they are, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I know, I know. Synthesizer is like uh, colors and sounds and stuff. Synthesizer? Yes, yeah, yeah. So, sorry, sorry, guys. Homeschooled. Homeschooled here. Please uh, don't, don't be so hard on me. So open source licenses basically codify rights. They codify what you can do with the software along primarily four dimensions that basically you know go back to Richard Stallman and free software. What you can see, so, so the source that you can see, source that you can mutate, uh, augment, and modify. It's typically a, a across all the source code that you can see, where you can run it and how you can run it, where you can execute the code after you've compiled it and built it and so on. And then how and where you can uh, distribute the same code or, or modified versions of the code. So those are four verbs or actions that you can take that involve very complex multivariate rights codification and legalese, uh, which is why we have 8,000 open source licenses, but some industry standardization on things like Apache, MIT, BSD, and so on after 20 years in. Nowhere near the level of clarity that we have on the governance logic and roles in the crypto ecosystem. That's where things start to overlap. However, what we're seeing now with the growth and the materialization of commercial open source as a category is a lot of companies I believe, and I've said this publicly before, wrongly mutating and applying the standard cornerstone licenses at the layer of open source projects that create the most value. And so if you apply one of these source available licenses that have discriminatory constraints against certain constituents like cloud providers, you radically reduce the surface area potential of distribution and contribution and a variety of other things, I believe, to a given open source project. I'm not saying that source available licenses and sort of like license innovation that, that isn't open source is a bad thing. If you apply it at a certain certain layer, it's actually good. And, and, and that's a bit of a tangent and separate thought. But the reason I brought it up is what I've noticed is a sort of cross-pollination of kind of precedence and understanding and clarity open source world has around licenses is so eerily similar to basically like economic kind of constitutions that exist in the blockchain ecosystems because they're all sort of like their own fragmented constitutions like these are the laws that exist to coordinate um, you know where the incentive structure lives, how it's deployed. All right, deployed so we gotta so we got we to wrap it up because we only got a, a couple more minutes. But let's yeah. get, let's give a look and and see each your closing thoughts on the on the ties between. Uh, I'll stop there. That's that's basically what fascinated me, and I think th- something that that is worth thinking about. So closing thoughts on the ties between open source and or commercial open source, and specifically the licensing issues if you've heard about them, and crypto networks, crypto incentives. Okay, a few thoughts. One, this is probably a topic for a longer discussion, but I actually think commercial open source today is pretty different from open source 
15, 20 years ago in the sense that I think it has much more to do with businesses preferring open source for reasons related to things like vendor lock-in and, and forms of social proof and validation rather than kind of the actual shape of development or a kind of a grassroots community around it. So that's one. So I actually think that that crypto in kind of originally there's like the cathedral and the bazaar, right, was the analogy. And I think that commercial open source looks more like cathedrals than bazaars today. But I think that crypto looks more like the bazaar in terms of like Ethereum right now is as bizarre as you can get. So I, I think crypto open source contribution today looks more like open source contribution did in the 80s and 90s. That's one. The second thing is I think that what's valuable is is a seat at the table in, in actually steering how these projects evolve. And so when I think about, I mean, right now, you, you, they even have steering committees for open source projects, right? And how do you get on the steering committee? You build it, you sponsor it, and, and then you have informal steering committees, right? These are basically like largest customers of the commercial vendor. They have kind of proxy voice in what gets adopted in the project. And so I think one thing that's different here is that you could have a more legible, transparent process for having a seat at the table in crypto for determining what happens. And I think that things like tokens that have governance rights are an important part of that. And so when I think about what are the incentives that we're changing, I think that having control over something is ultimately can be valuable. And that's something where crypto from an organizational structure piece can do something different. And so that's kind of where I'm more optimistic about how do you provide kind of upside and control and uh, to developers in a way that you you don't have with our traditional open source paradigm. What I see as the trickiest sort of trying to thread the needle for crypto is that it's certainly the case, especially when it comes to commercial open source, that one can be very explicit about the commercial ties and the companies that are being built on top of it and the different stakeholders that whose needs need to be addressed in developing the right kind of software. And for crypto, it's actually very hard to do that because crypto on the one side, trying to be a software project that is infrastructure for other software projects. But at the same time, there's this competing interest of trying to be money and trying to be a decentralized cryptocurrency that is not beholden to anybody. Exactly. Like if, if a cryptocurrency basically, you know, shows its hand that like, hey, we're actually a company, then we're trying to make money, you know, because of all the regulatory constraints and the fact that like there's there's this certain delegitimization that happens when you suddenly admit that like, okay, I'm not trying to be money for all human beings in the world. I'm like trying to serve my my actual end customers that ends up harming the ability of a cryptocurrency to be viable in right now the marketplace of crypto. So I think a lot of the incentives we see right now are kind of they're particular to this time and place. In the in the development of the crypto economy, as you know, five ten years from now, I imagine it'll look quite different. And I imagine we'll evolve more towards something that looks more similar to the open source uh, community for things that are decidedly not money mm-hmm. or decidedly not money like. Yeah. Right now, it's still early enough that everybody can kind of claim like, "Hey, I'm I'm money too," right. and eventually that that will just sound less and less. Compelling. It seems like that could be something holding holding a lot of this back. Because, I agree. You know, why be all things to all people when you can actually build something incredibly valuable, solving a specific pain point and use case? That's the thing with open source is like open source projects are built for very specific reasons, for applications, for use cases, and then they grow and evolve from there. Whereas these blockchains is sort of like, hey, here's my new Merkle tree thing implementation. Not Bitcoin. And, oh, it's money, and, oh, you can run a DNS server on it, and, oh, you can also solve all of the world's economic problems. Like, 
that just seems like a slippery slope. Completely agreed. And that's one reason why I think, well, we can just leave it on this, but that's one reason why I think layer two, which is sort of like synthetic software built on top of a layer one based blockchain is a very compelling architecture where you can just sort of separate out the needs of different layers of, of applications, right? Without having to have the base layer be all things to all men, which I don't think most base layers can be. All right. To be continued. Guys, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. This was really fun. Thanks. Awesome. Cool. Okay. Great. <laughs>